there's a phrase I could use to summarize um, Luke's gospel account, it would be this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In fact, there are several instances in Luke's account that point to this common theme, being emphasized often, to make very clear who Jesus was and why he came. There's the uh, angelic announcement of his birth that we're all familiar with in chapter 2. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, After Jesus was baptized in chapter 3, the voice from heaven declared, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. When Jesus cast out demons in chapter 4, the demons themselves cried out, You are the Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man who was let down through the roof by his friends in chapter 5, Jesus said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And while the scribes and Pharisees reasoned in their hearts, saying, Who can forgive sins but God alone? In chapter 7, when John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to ask of Jesus, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When Jesus and the disciples were caught in a windstorm while crossing over the lake in chapter 8, Jesus calms the storm by the word of his mouth, and the disciples marveled, saying, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. And then when Jesus asks his disciples in chapter 9, Who do you say that I am? And Peter famously answers, The Christ of God. The Christ of God. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 12 of this account, and Jesus just finished rebuking the Pharisees in chapter 11 for their hypocrisy. And just for a a lot of the wrong things that they've been doing. And now he's teaching directly to the crowd and to the disciples. If you look at the beginning of chapter 12, it says, In the meantime, when an innumerable, innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all. So he's speaking to his disciples directly and to the multitude, the crowd that has gathered. And we find our text here, uh, verse 49 through 59 at the tail end of Jesus' teaching on the faithful and the unfaithful servant. So if I could summarize that section, the context that we're in right now, we're on the tail end of this context, it's be ready. Be ready. There was the faithful servant who was ready, who was faithful, (laughs) who did what he was supposed to do. He was ready for his master's return. And then there's the unfaithful servant who was not. And then we see the consequences of that, of course, at the end there in verse number 48. And beginning in verse 49... Jesus takes the opportunity to dispel any... We're talking about who Jesus is, right? So, Jesus takes this opportunity to dispel any misinformed notions that the disciples and the crowd might have about him. In verse 51, he poses this question. Do you suppose that I came to get peace on earth? And he answers, I tell you, not at all, but rather division. And perhaps you and I, we can, we can read the book of Luke. And we're familiar with Luke 2 and the proclamation of the, the angels, you know, uh, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Um, we can probably just as well become misinformed and get the wrong impression. The prophet Isaiah even foretold of a Messiah who would be called the Prince of Peace. And even Peter in the New Testament, when he uh, summarizes the gospel, he calls it the gospel of peace. 
So why is Jesus exploding this idea of peace? Why is he saying, mm, nope, that's not who I am. I came to bring division. Why? What is, is it peace why he came? With that in mind, there are two things uh, I want us to see in the text this morning. Just two points. That doesn't mean it'll be short, but there'll be two points. A line has been drawn, and a decision must be made. A line has been drawn, a decision must be made. Look at verse 49. It says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, the word fire here tends to get our attention. Okay, it's an attention word. Uh, someone in the auditorium or in the back would yell out the word fire. We would immediately respond by getting out of the fire zone, right? Uh, but at the same time, someone may speak of a fire maybe on a cold winter evening, and we get warm thoughts, warm inviting thoughts, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, you know, kind of kind of things like that. So, um, but make no mistake, the disciples and the crowd are not thinking warm and inviting thoughts when Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth. They're jolted by this, okay? It, they're shocked by this. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> they're looking for somebody else. They're looking for a political leader. They're looking for someone who is going to relieve them of the oppression of the Roman government that they were experiencing at the time. And you get hints of that all throughout the gospel. But they're jolted by this and for good reason. If we were to trace the term fire throughout the Bible, minus any ambiguous references, we would find that it's associated with the holy presence and power of God, but also the wrath of God. And it's portrayed as a also a future wrath yet to be poured out on the enemies of God on the last day. So there's no way to paint what Jesus is saying here in any other way. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about the wrath of God. So how can this be? <laughs> Why? Elsewhere in John, John chapter 3, John chapter 8, Jesus has clearly stated that he's not come to judge, but he's come to save. In fact, in this account in Luke, uh, the Samaritans... When they rejected Jesus, his disciples said, do you want us to send fire down on them? Do you just want us to do that now? Just tell us. Give us the word and we'll do it. And Jesus said, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> you, have, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, there's definitely a future wrath that is yet to come at the end of time. When he comes again, he's going to come as king. He's, he's going to come to judge his enemies. But the language Jesus uses here is referring to his present coming. He says, I am come to bring fire on the earth. So the answer to this, partial answer to this, is the outpouring of wrath, this judgment, it's essential to the establishment of the kingdom of God. You see, because God is infinitely holy, sin must be eradicated. The kingdom of God and sin cannot coexist. They cannot be together. Uh, justice must be served. You know, that, that idea of justice, this idea of judgment, sometimes can be hard for people to get to, to think about and to, to resolve in their minds that, this, that a holy, loving God would allow judgment. But our debt is infinitely, it, it's an infinite debt. And he is infinitely holy. And so a payment for that debt is an infinite payment. It's an infinite payment. And this payment is God's wrath, the outpouring of God's wrath. Justice must be served. Sin debt, sin's debt must be paid. 
How many of us expect justice when we're wronged? How many of us expect the full extent of the law to be exacted on that person for doing wrong to us? How many of us feel slighted when they're not given the full extent of the law? Maybe just a slap on the wrist. We want justice when we're wronged. But when we start talking about how we've wronged our creator and our sin debt, we start to backpedal a little bit. So how much more should we expect a holy, loving God to carry out justice? Wouldn't we think it unloving and crooked for an earthly judge to not be just? So what is this fire he's so eager to bring then? Why is he so eager about it? Why is he saying, I, I wish it were already kindled? Does he want to wipe out the world? Is that, is that what he's saying? He's saying, I just, I just can't wait for God to just pour out his wrath on all of you. No. I think verse 50 gives a little more clarification. As we go on, we'll get more clarification what he's talking about. But verse 50 will help us here. Look at, look at verse 50. It says, but I have, Jesus speaking, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the Messiah, and he speaks, a, uh, speaks of a baptism of fire. We don't have time to go there this morning, but you can look at that uh, today if you'd like. But uh, he speaks of this baptism of fire, and this baptism Jesus is talking about here in verse number 49 is in reference to that. Um, but why is he so distressed about it? Why is he so distressed about this baptism? Uh, well, first of all, we need to uncover this, what we think when we hear the word baptism. Okay, we may think of the ordinance of baptism. Okay, but this word baptism, it means to immerse. It means to immerse. And depending on the context that you use it in, it means to be overwhelmed. So if you say you were immersed, you were, you were overwhelmed in affliction, in calamities. So... This baptism Jesus is talking about, he's speaking of, he's referring to his eventual death on the cross. He's referring to the suffering he's about to undergo for you and for me. So this fire that he came to send, it's not going to be poured out on the world. This baptism of fire, this outpouring of God's wrath, was meant for him, or would be meant for him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he made him, for God made Jesus, his son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus would become sin for us, and God would pour out all of his wrath on him, therefore satisfying God's wrath. So it was on the cross that Jesus would take upon himself the sin of the world, becoming sin, suffering the full weight of God's punishment. He would pay the debt. He would pay the infinite debt that we could not pay. So now why, why in the world would someone be eager for such pain and suffering, though? He says, I'm, I'm eager. I'm, I'm distressed until, until it happens. I, I want this to happen now. The answer, he knows what's going to result. He knows what the result will be from this pain and suffering. You see, Jesus can look forward to his baptism and to the fire that was to be kindled in the same way that a pregnant woman can look forward to her labor. She doesn't look forward to the pain. 
<laughs> she doesn't look forward to the, the anguish, okay? She doesn't look forward to all the stupid things her husband is going to do while she's in pain. Okay, she doesn't look forward to all that. She looks forward to the life that is going to result from the birth. All right, so Jesus can look forward to this distress, this suffering, this pain, this anguish, because he knows that it will produce life, right? It will produce life. So although this baptism of fire Jesus would perform, would perform on behalf of the world uh, would result in eternal life, for all of those who would turn and trust in him, that's key there, for all those who would turn and trust in him, it would also be the cause of great division. It would also be the cause of great division. You see, there's a cost that comes with following Jesus. Following Jesus isn't an add-on. We talked about that in, in our Sunday school this morning. Following Jesus is not something you add on to your life. These are all my pursuits. This is what I want my life to be. This is what I want my future to be like. And I'm just going to tack Jesus onto the side here. And I'll access him when I need him. You know, following Jesus is leaving all other pursuits and turning to him and latching onto him. He's the one who directs the other pursuits. Not to say that those pursuits are wrong. Not to say a career is wrong or a family is wrong. But when those become the main thing, when they become the greatest love, following Jesus has a cost. Following Jesus has a cost, and he goes into this cost here in verse number 51 through 53, kind of more in a fundamental way. But do you look at verse number 51? Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. And he goes in and, and, and speaks of different family relations okay, within that house. You see, while he's the prince of peace, he is also the source of division. Now, it's not division for division's sake, okay? It wasn't random. It's not, I'm just going to cause a bunch of trouble. <laughs> I'm just going to cause families to be against each other. Now, we can understand the whole daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law thing. I mean, maybe that's a natural thing, you know, okay? But he's not talking about that, all right? He's talking about a fundamental division. Notice that it's within a family where the bond of union is the most intimate. Notice that the polarization, the separation, it's not one against four. It's not one against one. It's two against three. Three against two. So, you see, those who come to faith in Christ because of what he did on the cross, okay, those who come to faith in Christ find a new unity in him. All right, hence the church. <laughs> they find a new unity in him. And those not in Christ, whether they would say so or not, there are those who are definitely in opposition to Christ. Yes. Right. Yes. But by default, you and I, outside of Christ, are in opposition. Amen. We're in opposition. Those outside Christ find a unity in opposition to him. They are the enemies of God. We were the enemies of God. If you, if you are um, a, a Christian here this morning, we were the enemies of God. And if they're in opposition to Christ, they'll be in opposition to you. Yeah. So Jesus doesn't use the example of division in family relationships by mistake, right? 
for some people, and it's very easy because these relationships are so intimate that we can allow those to become the thing, the pursuit. This is what I need to make work in my life. This is what everything's going to revolve around is these, this relationship. Now, you can put whatever you want there and, and use that example, but he uses the family here. Following Jesus is not an add-on. There will come a time where you have to choose who you will serve. So he has to be everything to you. And what I like about Luke's account is that Jesus is never ambiguous about what it costs to follow him. In fact, you read the book of Luke and you will find that. People approach him and say, hey, wait a second. I want to follow you, but first let me go do this. What does Jesus say? Look, if you're going to follow me, follow me. Uh, the rich young ruler who came to him and said, hey, I've done, I followed the whole law. <laughs> you know, what am I missing? He says, sell all you have and follow me. And what happened? He said, he went away sorrowful. Following Jesus is everything. He calls us to make a choice. But there's some good news behind this. Okay, Jesus doesn't cause this division and then watch us and be like, <laughs> you know, kind of enjoy the whole fact that those who are not in him are against us. He says, well, too bad for you. I mean, that just kind of comes with it. No, you see Jesus, although there's a cost to identifying with Jesus, he doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. So you see Jesus, he would subject himself to that same fundamental division that he came to bring. Although Jesus would experience unspeakable pain and suffering on the cross, and that, that's a very visible form of suffering that we can see. There's something else going on there. There's another kind of suffering going on there. A deeper emotional and spiritual pain. You see, Jesus had always been one with God, the Father. He always did his will. He was always the perfect son. But in that very moment when he became sin for us, God's holiness required a divine separation between God the Father and God the Son, and hence his cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But see, this fundamental division that he suffered, it would result in the fundamental peace with God. He's not throwing peace out the window. He's just bringing in the right kind and focusing them on the right kind. Hey, you want me to be this military leader. That's not why I came. I'm going to do this. It's going to cause division, but it's going to bring about the most fundamental peace that you need. That's the most important thing for all those who return and trust in him. So, yes, he did come to bring peace, to bring peace, but not the peace that we often try to look for. Not the peace that this world can offer us, but peace with God. Number two. So line has been drawn. Number two, a decision must be made. Look at verse 54 through 56. It says, Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? You see, the ability to judge evidence and come to a conclusion based on that evidence, it's not limited to the experts. It's not limited to this, these holy people that 
they make those choices. They make those discernments. And you and I just kind of float about freely <laughs> and hope that we make the right ones. We have a responsibility, especially when it comes to the... He's speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the disciples. He's not talking to the religious leaders anymore. He is talking to the people and he says, discern the time. Make a choice. Look what's in front of you. There's a window of opportunity here. See it for what it is. Look at the evidence. He's, he's calling them to make a choice. The miracles alone that Jesus did should have been enough to convince them. He, he reached into death and he brought people back to life from death. That should have been enough. And just a host of other things that happened. Just as knowing the forecast causes us to order our lives in preparation for the weather. I'm going to bring an umbrella today because it's going to rain. I'm going to wear a hoodie today because it's going to be a little chilly. <laughs> I'm going to wear short shorts today because it's going to be nice out, right? Jesus compels us to order our lives accordingly in the same way. Look at the evidence. Look what's in front of you and prepare. Be ready. Be ready. So Jesus does condemn the Pharisees a lot but he doesn't let the crowd off the hook this time. The leaders were guilty, but so were the people. The weight of responsibility is on us to make a decision. We cannot ignore it. Look at verse number 58 through 59. It gives us kind of another example to look at it. Okay, Verse 58, When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. So in the same way that we can discern the weather and order our lives accordingly, we also have the ability to assess the situation and make a choice and deal with it. We can act quick. We have to act quickly and resolve it. Uh, if you've had the opportunity, <laughs> rather than um, let a fender bender that was your fault, very much your fault, <laughs> go to a judge who could be very severe, maybe would go to the full extent of the law or whatever. Uh, maybe there was someone hurt in that accident. Uh, tons of examples we can use there, but fender bender probably more, uh, <laughs> probably could apply to more of us today. But wouldn't we rather settle if we could? Wouldn't we rather settle right then and there? Hey, 100 bucks and this all goes away. In that case, you don't have a week to think about it. You can't mull it over for a month. You have to make a choice. Time is of the essence. You have to act quickly. So there's this urgency. There's this discern, discern the time, judge it, but there's an urgency. You don't have a whole lot of time. The coming of Jesus, it tells us that... <laughs> God, one, God is working. God is very much involved in this world, in his creation. He has not left it to rot. He's not left it because of sin. He's, he inserted himself into creation and caused this. He, he is sending his son to die for us. He's, he's very much involved. And this is a sign that there's a window of opportunity to make things right. There's a window of opportunity to reconcile the situation. Jesus is depicting our position before God. We are undeniably guilty. Our debt is infinite. Our due punishment is severe. But God, in his 
great love and mercy has presented to us a window of opportunity to be reconciled to him. And that opportunity has been made manifest in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And Jesus implores us to pursue this opportunity. Because God is infinitely holy and we are not, sin has left us with a debt toward God that we, we can't possibly pay. But the coming of Jesus signifies that we are in a time when we can still be reconciled to God through him. Through him. So I'll say this in closing. Verse number 57. We skipped this for a reason. Verse number 57 says, Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? What is he saying here? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? There's nobody who can make this choice for you. There's no one who you can be spiritual through, okay? This is, on, this is you. This is you and Christ. This is you and God. Make a choice. Verse 57 sums up the response that Jesus expects of those who have seen his power, who have heard his word, and it echoes the response God has always expected from mankind down through the ages. Will you obey or will you eat of the tree? I told you not to eat. Will you get on the ark or drown? Will you leave Sodom and Gomorrah or be consumed by the fire? Will you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, or will you seek to serve yourself? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Christian, following Jesus comes with a cost. Consider the cost. We're not saying going in blindly, right? Consider the cost. But don't do so without first considering his cost. That will very much, very much change the way you think about it. Instead of just sacrifice and rules and me being suppressed and not able to do anything. No, he, he paid the price for you. He brought about a peace with God that you could not bring. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't just an add-on. It's, it's your life. Jesus demands nothing less. So ask yourself this question. What have you given up to follow him? What have you given up to follow him? What are you giving up to follow him? For those of you who have not placed your faith in Christ, your judgment, this fire to be kindled that Jesus, Jesus brought, this future judgment that we've talked about today, your judgment can be a judgment of the past, done, paid for, paid in full, or it can be a judgment of the future. You can reject Jesus Christ and his free gift of righteousness, face God's judgment, be consumed by his wrath on the final day, or you can turn and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, knowing he's already absorbed the wrath of God in your place and satisfied the debt on your behalf. In closing, our Isaiah 55, verse number 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray.